Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast and today I'm really honoured to have a fellow EQ expert. I say a fellow EQ expert, this guy's been around the EQ journey perhaps a little bit longer than I. Uh, while ever I've got 30 years of leadership experience in the police service, I truly only got into EQ or began to understand what EQ is, emotional intelligence, is about 10 to 15 years ago, where I think Josh has been living and breathing it all of his life. Uh, I'm honoured uh, and really, really pleased to have with me as my guest today, Joshua Friedman. Joshua is the CEO of Six Seconds, which is a global EQ uh, community. Uh, and company. They have worked with all sorts of organizations around exactly what we talk about in this program. So it's a real pleasure to talk to Joshua. The only downside is that Joshua is sitting in his shirt sleeves in California, whereas I have got the heating on full here in the UK. <laughs> Something doesn't seem fair about that. But hey, Joshua, really, really good to have you on the program. Well, I would love to have you come over and we could sit outside. <laughs> and do this in person <laughs> <laughs> well of course global travel is back on isn't it so who's to say that i won't jump on a plane anytime soon i'm looking forward to that <laughs> thank you so much for being here and you you know i talked about eq and six seconds and the stuff that you have done with six seconds this is a global community it's been around for a while and you've done some incredible work but before we get into that, I just want to talk to you about this whole concept of human-centered leadership. I'd like to ask my guests, what does it mean to you? What does human-centered leadership mean to well, you? Well, when I saw you talking about that on LinkedIn, uh, I was really appreciated your post and perspective. For me, it's, it's really been central to the way I've been uh, working and leading and teaching about leadership for 25 years. One of my books, the, the bestseller, is called At the Heart of Leadership. And in that book, what I tried to do was really make the case for why emotions are actually an essential and invaluable part of what it means to lead. And I think that, you know, the question for people who are in a role of leader or aspiring to that is, well, what is it when you say lead, what do you lead? You know, do you lead systems? Do you do you push papers? Are you the like the best paper pusher in the building? Like, or when you say lead, do you mean that you lead people? And for me, implicit in the word leadership is that your job is people. And that that is the center of your job, not peripheral to your job. And so I think this, this notion of human-centered leadership is acknowledging 
I, I actually don't think there's a difference between human-centered leadership and leadership, but I think it's acknowledging what leadership is really about and the notion that we don't actually achieve results in any endeavor without engaging and working with and through people. And so fundamentally what it means to lead is to put people in a context where they can be and do more than they could without you. Now, otherwise, you know, hang up the hat. Like, nobody needs to be paying your salary so you can, you know, have a business card that says leader. Like, what is it that you're really going to contribute? And that fundamentally is about you as a human being with other human beings. So very true. And, you know, it's so refreshing to hear someone else say that. <laughs> I've been in front of so many leaders and, uh, you know, when I'm maybe delivering something, a presentation, a keynote around leadership, I, I often say, you know, I, I, I Google the word leadership and I got something like 4.1 billion results back in 0.67 seconds. But when I Google the word leadership and the definition of the word leadership, I always come across the same definition. And it is leadership is when you have to lead an organization or lead a group of people. And I'm always flummoxed by this definition. Like if you have to use <laughs> leadership is leading. Yeah. So if you have to use the word leading to describe leadership, maybe even the dictionary doesn't understand. So I came up with my own. And I think leadership is about influencing people or influencing outcomes. Now, if if we take that to the next level, then it really is understanding what you're talking about. I have a, a phrase that rattles around in my head that I heard about 30 years ago. The art of an outstanding leader is not how, it's not how good a leader you are. It's about how many leaders you create. Mm. And we'll only create leaders when we understand the importance of people being at the very heart of everything that we do. And there's another uh, phrase that I heard, a, a happy workforce is a productive workforce. So what you're essentially t saying is put your people at the heart of everything, do not before everything, but at the heart of everything. And you will find that your workplace is a better culture. It's a happier workplace. It's a work, more trusting workplace. It's a more productive workplace. And it affects the bottom line. So I did a case study about our work with FedEx. And when Fred Smith started FedEx, he had a number of revolutionary ideas. One of them was he said, Profit is an outcome. And when we think about the value chain of how do you actually create that outcome, it's actually not customers that come first. It's people that come first. And so he, the kind of found, founding principle of the structure of how you make money at FedEx, and they've obviously done quite a good job of that, is called people-first leadership. And... <clears throat> they have a model, which is PSP, People, Service, Profit. And they got interested in emotional intelligence because they said, we need the skills that are going to let our leaders be more effective as people-first leaders. And I've worked with a lot of different companies. Uh, FedEx has, you know, it's not perfect, but it's quite remarkable in that that founding principle of people-first leadership and PSP, they call it the purple promise to go with their, you know, their uniforms. But part of the purple promise is that people come first. And literally, it's the way they conceptualize value creation. And I think if 
if more organizations really understood that that your people, I mean, so many places say, you know, oh, people are our number one asset, but in fact, people are a cost on the balance sheet. Right? Literally, when you look at standard accounting, I don't know, in the UK. <laughs> Probably about 80% of your budget. Right, you can buy a 10 million quid, you know, piece of equipment and it shows up as an asset. You hire one more person and they show up on your balance sheet as a cost. So I think in some fundamental way, leaders are disincentivized from thinking about people are actually where they make their money. Your people are your investment. And if it, if it does, if, if, if the employees equate to something like 70, 80% of your budget, then if you had bought a house and that cost you 70, 80% of your earnings, your lifetime earnings, or a car that was significant expense, you'd look after that. Mm. So by the same token, it really is about reinvesting back in your people so you get more from your people. If you get the culture right, then your people are going to be more productive. And this whole concept of the customer is first. Uh, I, I tend to agree that if you don't put your people first or at the heart of what you do, they are not going to put your customer first. They're not going to deliver high quality to your customer. I, I love what you're saying. And I have a little hesitation about this idea of investing because something I've heard from some organizational leaders is, oh, yes, this, this stuff you're talking about is really interesting, but we can't afford to invest right now. And so I would actually just reframe it slightly and say, you are bleeding money. You're wasting a, a huge amount of your potential right now. You have a large percentage of your expenses are going in the trash can every day because you have failed to plug the leaks in your pipes. And those leaks are about distrust, misalignment, lack of connection, you've left emotions out of work. You've left out loyalty and commitment and excitement and joy and trust. Those are all emotions. And you've, you've done such a good job of saying, oh, let's just be rational and leave emotions out of it. You've left emotions out of work and now you're just pouring money down the drain. And it's a cost. And if you if you want to stop wasting so much money, it's actually a very fixable problem. It's not about investing. It's about saving your skin. When I talk about the issue of investing, very often you have to invest some money to have somebody coming into your organization to work with your staff to help you create the culture that you want to have within the organization. And that takes, that takes a, a leap of faith because often one of the first questions I'm asked is, how can you correlate what you are doing, the culture that you're creating, to my bottom line? And that is a tough one. And, and so many mm -hmm. leaders are thinking in that very linear kind of way. I'm sure you've had people say the same to you. What, what do you answer to them? Way back, um, I used to do a lot of keynotes where business leaders would say, we want you to come talk about the business case for emotional intelligence. And at first... I went in and said, well, look at this study and here's this data. And I mean, I'm not a scholar. I'm a, I'm a scholar practitioner. I, I publish a lot of research. I do a lot of, of um, providing evidence about this work. And, and I thought that that was what they meant when they said, present the business case. And 
now I don't do that at all. I, I go in and I say, all right, so what are you struggling with? And, you know, write it down on a post-it. And back in the old days, you know, when we met in person, put it up on the wall. And like, let's look at all these post-its and what do they have in common? And um, we've done numerous studies on this and about 70% of the answers are people. And so then I say, all right, so how do we fix that? Like, what would it take? What would be the skills and awareness that your leaders and your managers need to fix this problem? And they say things like uh, communicating, connecting, aligning, supporting, engaging, you know, listening. I'm like, oh my goodness. So what you're really saying is there's part of this that's rational, but there's this huge part of this that's emotional. And they go, yeah, that's what we're saying. Like, okay, so what if there was a measurable, learnable skill set that would equip your people to do that, solve that problem? What would that be worth to you? A lot. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, one exercise that I often do in my programs is I'll, I'll ask them, try to recollect your worst leader that you've ever had or the worst boss or the, and the, or, or the best boss and think about the, the, the issues or the aspects of that that, that person that made them the worst or the best and just put them on the board. And inevitably what you get, you might get 20% that is all about technical skills, but about 80% will all be around emotions and human skills. You know, the, 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 the lack of connection or the, uh, the fundamental and powerful communication or how they made them feel generally, just how they made them feel. And, and I mean, the, the with the both examples that we've used there, it is fundamental that when you get a group of people working together, there's going to be a lot of emotions because that is what makes us up as human beings. And those emotions will lead to the how we deal with each other, how we connect with each other, and how we connect and deal with each other will lead to how well we perform. It's as simple as that. Well, at six seconds, we say emotions drive people, people drive performance. Simple as that. I was... Uh... I mean, I'm very interested in your experience with, with policing. And there are a lot of organizations that have a very kind of transactional, rule-oriented culture. And a lot of those organizations are also very afraid of emotions. So one of the projects I did was with the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. And um, one of the things that I found fascinating is they talk about emotions all the time. They just never use the word emotions. In fact, I had one I had one senior officer say, this material is fantastic, but couldn't we just call it something other than emotional intelligence? So, you know, in the Marine Corps, they talk about oorah and esprit, and they say, you got to get your head in the game. And like, it's central to what leadership means in the Marine Corps is about, uh, about emotion. It is, isn't it? When you think about any armed forces, and I was talking to a retired lieutenant colonel um, on one of these podcasts, and I was talking to him about leadership within the army, and he was describing exactly that. Uh, whereas my experience in the police service has been slightly different. It is a very rule-orientated organization. Less so now. It's, it, is, it is growing, and I was talking to uh, the uh, CEO of the UK College of Policing on this podcast, Andy Marsh, just a few weeks ago. And Andy, uh, 
And you just need to understand the British policing structure. So England and Wales, two of the countries that make up the United Kingdom, share uh, 43 different police forces, but they have the same power wherever you go. So when I was a police officer, I could go anywhere in England or in Wales, and I would still be a police officer. And they are driven by some uh, some central organisations, and one of them is called the College of Policing, which sort of sets all the strategic training, the strategic direction of travel for the police service. So it's quite an influential organisation, and he's just become the CEO of that. He was a chief constable elsewhere before. And he was sort of talking about how emotional intelligence is so critical. Our ability to interconnect with each other is so critical uh, in, in, in the here and now. One of my frustrations in the police service over 32 years was the issue of diversity. Now, I was a big proponent of driving diversity. I was one of the very few brown or black officers in the, in, in the police force that I joined. Um, I've seen my fair share of bias. Um, but um, so consequently, I sort of really strove to get my police force to strive towards diversity. But now my thinking has changed. I'm saying that we've had this singular focus on diversity for 30 years and it's not really changed. It's changed a bit. It's improved to some degree. But why are we still having the conversation, particularly around race? Why are we still having that conversation? It's because it's not being fixed. And that's because I believe that diversity, this issue of diversity, is, is, is a byproduct of culture. I get lots of organisations saying, can you come and talk about diversity? I say, I don't talk about diversity anymore. I talk about culture. And... My view is this. If you get your culture right, where people feel valued, appreciated, heard and seen, diversity follows. People will run towards your organisation because you've become an employer of choice. Uh, and the other <laughs> thing that I, uh, issue that I had with the police service was this constant um, talk about soft skills. Anything to do with emotional intelligence, connecting, communication was regarded as a, a soft skill. But when you've got an organization full of people, surely that's the hardcore skill. It's like the number one skill set that you need to have in your organization. <laughs> it sure is hard. Like as a leader, I will say, you know, making a budget is really easy for me. Bringing 10 people into alignment around that budget is is the hard skill. I agree with you about diversity. I I think there's a very important connection between emotional intelligence and equity. I think it's how you put the EQ in equity. Absolutely. In our book, Inside Change, one of the things we talked about is that there's one of the big myths of change is that systems will drive change. So a typical example would be you have a, an organization where they say, all right, we're not getting enough sales, so let's put in a new sales management CRM, a customer relation management platform. And that's gonna make our salespeople be more proactive. And it wastes a million dollars or 800,000 pounds or whatever it is. Right? And uh, they struggle and struggle and struggle to get adoption and engagement in that tool. And they think the tool is gonna solve the people problem. And I think I've seen this in so many different ways. All right, we have a people problem so let's make a policy. We have a people problem, so let's buy a product. We have a people problem, so let's make a new formula for our ratio of how we hire. And none of those systems work because you don't solve a people problem, a relational problem, 
with a system. You have to work on relational skills and the way people engage with each other. And then the system can come in and help. And the other thing is, you know, talk about systems and processes. It's how we structure our whole HR systems. And even the HR advisors within organizations, unless you're one of these very few enlightened organizations that get it, um, much of your HR advisors are going to be talking about systems and processes and policies and regulations as opposed to human beings. And, and, it, and it is that. It's a very subtle difference. But I find that sometimes uh, we... We almost uh, create this clinical environment in which HR operates yeah. rather than bringing into the people, sort of mentality of the, the people that exist within your organization. And those organizations that, uh, that, that, that take that brave step, that courageous step of making sure that HR is intrinsic in the culture of the organization, you can actually notice them straight away. I went into, there's an accountancy firm here, uh, and I went there for a meeting. And I was expecting accountancy firm, maybe I had my own biases. I was expecting a very clinical, very organized environment, very serious, austere kind of environment. I walked into this, this building, I opened the door, and I was, it, was like being in, uh, it was like being in Alice in Wonderland. It was so colorful. It was incredible. Um, they had all sorts of imaginative ways of keeping the staff occupied. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute, this might just be like a superficial veneer. Can I go to the back office? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I, can I actually talk to some of the staff and see how they're feeling? Because they were still working away, beavering away. I thought, you know, sometimes we, we focus on the, 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 the environment, but we'd forget the people. But I spoke to some of the people. And then I spoke to some of the HR people. Uh, around their sickness rates, absence rates, the uh, the performance. And you know what? They said, we don't measure absenteeism. We just don't measure it. If somebody needs time off, they get time off. And I was like, this is unheard of. <laughs> and they said, but we are growing as a company. We continue to grow. We're just buying another premises over there. We're going into another city over there. We're expanding all the time. So we have this intuitive belief that this works. And I thought, how brave. I had this early in our history as an organization, I had an employee say, I don't want to come into the office anymore. And I immediately went through this like, oh, well, then how will I know you're working? And and then I realized, my gosh, that's really dinosaur thinking. If I don't trust this person, and if I don't set up a structure where we can both see their results, then what am I, like, What? why are, why are the, why are we working together? Why am I signing that check? So um, I just said, you know, okay, fantastic. Like, let's talk about what you are going to accomplish and how we're both going to know you're accomplishing it. And that was it. And that really set the the template. Uh, now uh, we have offices and teams all over the world. We have people in um, 16 different countries who work for six seconds we have partners and allies in 150 countries. And um, I have no idea when people are working. We don't have any kind of clock. We don't have any kind of check-in. We don't have any kind of... We do have a policy about time off, but we don't track it. And um, if it becomes an issue, then we have to have a conversation about it. But uh, we're all about 
we're here for a reason. We know what the reason is. We all know what we're trying to accomplish. We all have a piece of it that we're focused on. And we've worked to structure the organization in such a way that everybody can see, okay, I'm moving. I have certain things that I'm responsible for moving and I'm moving them or not. And by the way, I tell our people all the time, I don't care if you uh, achieve your goals. I care that you're going in the right direction. I don't care if, you know, if our if our goal was a, you know, 20% growth and we get a 10% growth, I'm as long as we don't go bankrupt, I'm fine with that. Absolutely. We're moving in the right direction. We're moving in the right direction and it's been fascinating to see like as we you know, launch Six Seconds in China, for example. And many conversations with the, the director of Six Seconds in China. It's like, well, what do you mean? What happens if we don't meet the goal? And I said, well, I'm like, I'm interested in what happens in 25 years. So this year's goal isn't actually that important to me. But are we building the capacity? Are we building the culture? Are we building people? Are we engaging is our trust growing? And if our trust is growing, that the numbers are going to follow. And lo and behold, they have. And I mean, I, we've grown financially as an organization, an average of 30% a year for over a decade, uh, with the exception of 2020. Um, but then in 2020, uh, we lost 40% of our revenues globally. And... Um, we managed to make it through 2020 without losing a single employee. And many of us went on to partial play voluntarily. And we actually were very close to break even, in, even in 2020. So, you know, I, I know this from research. I know this from my experience as a CEO. I know this from my heart and from my head that this kind of approach... It, it, it works, but it is not the norm. That, that is so powerful as an example. And thanks very much for sharing that with, with us, Joshua. There'll be a lot of organizations right now who are perhaps thinking, okay, the world is opening up again. Um, forget all of this remote working. I want things back as they used to be. Uh, I want everyone back into the workplace. Well, you and I both know, as do most of the world, the things have changed. People have changed. People's thinking have changed. The great resignation has demonstrated how people have recalibrated their priorities. People, some people like working from home or having a hybrid system. Um, what would you say to those employers who are adamant that they want their employees back to work in the office full time? I would say, what's the real reason? And if you're really honest about it, is it because you're trying to control something you can't control. So there are a lot of organizations that are, are hybrid and have been hybrid for many years, but most of them are what I would call a headquarters-centric company. And so basically, you know, the most senior leaders are in this building. And if you're not in that building, you are you know, a sort of stepchild. There are a few companies in the world that are uh, remote first. And just coincidentally, I, I didn't do this on purpose, but Six Seconds is a remote first organization. We've not had our team together in one place 
since we were very, very small in 2003. And so, you know, it, it has made us incredibly resilient, but also very culturally adaptive, adaptive. And it's why we can work in 200 countries and territories and why our tools and methods, you know, are adopted all over the world. Because we aren't about like, okay, this is the way. In fact, one of our principles, we have six principles that drive our culture. And one of them is no way is the way. And like, if you want to work everywhere in the world, you're going to have to get over your own self. <laughs> so kind of a long answer to say, like, what's the really brutal, honest truth about why you want people in that office? And I suspect the answer is because you're trying to control something. And essentially, when you say, the more you say, I want to control, the more you're saying, I want to disempower. And actually, unless you ask yourself that question, you're not demonstrating self-awareness. So some people will unconsciously, almost unconsciously, make these statements and make these decisions as leaders and not truly understand what is going on. What, what are the emotions that are driving this, this decision of mine? So it's almost saying you, as much as anybody else in your organization, needs to you know, become more emotionally intelligent <laughs> um, in the nicest possible way. I have had several senior leaders say to me, yes, this stuff sounds really good. I want you to do it with our middle managers because I'm too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> I've had exactly the same. I've had exactly the same. <laughs> yes, I'm too long in the tooth for this. But uh, you know, the next generation of leaders, my middle managers, you know, maybe, maybe you need to focus on those. In fact, I had the same conversation early on today, and I said, "Look, we're never going to change the culture of your organisation if we don't also give you a flavour, at least a flavour of what emotional intelligence is about." Yeah, I can do all the work with your middle leaders and your your front line, but you also need to understand because that's where your cult holistic cultural change is going to come from. There's just so much synergy and so much to discuss, um, but we have run out of time, Joshua. Please do come on another program with us. I would love that. Uh, so we'll, we'll sort something out. Thank you. But in the meantime, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, longer may you continue the good fight of emotional intelligence and human-centered leadership in the world. Thank you. Let's put people, people first. Thanks. Cole. People first. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care, have a great day.